Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil series. Here we are, ready to go. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 8, as we kick off our practice on fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. Before we begin, recommended reading. There is a lot on your bookmark from The Way In. Let me highlight three to kick it off. First is The Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard. This is one of my top 10 books of all time. It is a synthesis of spirituality and psychology. If you have not read this yet, it is worth your time. If you have, go back and reread his two chapters on transforming the mind, which were the spark that got me thinking down the path that we are about to embark on. Secondly, The Truth About Lies and Lies About the Truth by David Tackle. You've never heard of this book. It's not on any bestseller list anywhere, but it is an off the beaten path gem. And what it maybe lacks in design or whatever, it more than makes up for in content. It's all about truth and lies. More on that to come. Take a look at that. And then finally, how many of you read The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis? Yes, all three, well, the other two gatherings, it was at least 50, 60%. For you, it's 30 or 40%. But a lot of you are still young. You have time, all right? We pray for you. This is well worth your time. It is short. It is easy. It is funny. It is a work of satire about the devil. It is at the same time a profound intellectual exploration of a whole other dimension of reality. Pick it up. All three books are available for sale out at our info table or through our online bookstore. That said, John chapter 8 is hopefully open in your lap. There is evil in the world. And thank God, there is also good. A few days ago, I went on a run through Forest Park and down through downtown or across the river and down the eastern esplanade and it was an 80 plus degree day. Remember that? It feels like eons ago. Bright, sunny outside and as I was running back over the Tillicum, I just, you know, the view to the city right there, I just thought I live in a modern day Garden of Eden. And then I got home and I read the news. And that day, the uproar, the reality TV in real time over the Supreme Court nomination. He said, she said. And later that night, um, in my own home, I lost my temper with my middle boy. And up late into the night, I had to play mop-up and apologize and make right what was wrong. Because there is an evil, not only out there in society, but in here, in my own soul. And I, for one, feel this fight, this inner tug of war between good and evil in my own mind and body. For many of us in the room who find Jesus compelling, the Western secular theories that attempt to explain away evil as a lack of education or a socioeconomic or sociopolitical issue or problem or some hangover from evolutionary psychology fall flat of our human experience and the solutions even more so. Teachers of the way of Jesus, on the other hand, for millennia now, have 
opened up a whole other dimension to reality, a whole other lens by which to view good and evil, and have used the language of the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil, come on, to put to words this sense we all feel, follower of Jesus or not, it's just the human experience, of a fight, of a war of sorts in our society and in our own soul. Now, this exact language of the three enemies of the soul is not used by Jesus or the writers of the New Testament, but these words, the world, the flesh, the devil, all are, and these ideas run all the way through the library of Scripture. So on the docket for the fall is to explore what Jesus and teachers of the way have said over the years about this fight, this war of sorts that we're all caught up in. Our agenda is, as Sun Zi said in that well-known line from The Art of War, know your enemy. Or in our case, know your enemies. Our, our agenda here is just to unmask his stratagem in order, as an apprentice of Jesus once said in a letter that some of us have come to believe was far more than just a letter, fight the good fight of the faith. That said, um, we thought we would kick it off with the devil just because. John chapter eight, verse 31. Let's read what Jesus has to say about the devil. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples or apprentices. Then you will know the truth, and read it with me, the truth will set you free, one of Jesus' best known teachings. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone, which by the way is a little bit of ironic. Have you read the Old Testament? That's a little bit less than true. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. More on that later. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, say it, you will be free indeed. Now, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in my father's presence, and you're doing what you have heard from your father. Now you're thinking, who is their father? Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, which is Jesus for wrong answer, <laughs> then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. And again, you're thinking, who is their father? We are not illegitimate children, they protested. Now, the word there in Greek is another word. It's not illegitimate children. There's an innuendo, innuendo here about Jesus' parentage and how Jesus was born out of wedlock. A far more accurate translation is we are not bastards like you are. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own, God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to even hear what I have to say. You belong to your father, wait for it, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Not holding to the truth, 
for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. How are we doing? Welcome to church. (laughs) Happy you are here. Give me a bullhorn, let's go. Right out of the gate, notice a few things from Jesus take on the devil. First off, for Jesus, let's start here, there is a devil. The devil, um, which in Greek is diabolos, where we get the word diabolical, and which in Greek is from a verbal root meaning to slander or to accuse. So more literally, it's the slanderer or the accuser. The devil is one of many names used by Jesus and the writers of the New Testament for a creature that we read about all the way through the library of Scripture. Jesus also calls him the Satan, the evil one, the tempter, the destroyer, the deceiver, the serpent of old. Notice all of these are titles, not names. So a lot of us hear Satan and we think of that as a proper name in English. It's not. In Greek, in Greek it's Hasatan or the Satan or the adversary or the accuser. Some scholars think it is a subtle dig from Jesus and the writers of the Bible that this creature does not even get a name. Three times Jesus calls this creature the ruler of this world. The root ruler is archon in Greek and it was a political word for the highest ranking position in a government. To Jesus, this creature is the most powerful and influential creature in the cosmos. Now, we'll talk more in depth about the devil and his origins. For today, I just want to skip right to the the good stuff. Um, I just want you to begin to see that for Jesus, the devil is real. Not a myth, not a figment of the imagination, not a holdover from a superstitious pre-scientific age, nor is he a red cartoon character with a pitchfork on your shoulder, or Will Ferrell on SNL. Um, or a talking snake to all of our fundamentalist friends. He is, to Jesus, an invisible but real intelligence that is the evil behind so much of the evil in our soul and our society. And in this case, the story that we just read, behind, listen carefully, the religious leaders of the day. There is a Hebrew slight that we miss in the story, but Jesus ties the religious leaders from the temple in Jerusalem to a prophecy in Genesis 3 about the seed of the woman, if you know that, and the seed of the serpent, and he claims that the religious leaders are the seed of the serpent, that the devil is your father, not Abraham. Come on, Jesus of Nazareth. In other places, he does the exact same thing with the Roman Empire, where he says, okay, there's an evil, yes, That's a human evil or a sociopolitical evil or an institutional, but behind that evil is a whole other evil at play. Now, if you, you are here tonight, and to you that sounds crazy. In all honesty, you just think, Jesus, you have some great things to say about love, that whole love your neighbor as yourself thing, brilliant, the golden rule, I'm down for that relationship advice, you have some great stuff to say, Jesus. But this whole part about the devil is wonky. Now we know better, we have Wikipedia. I went to community college, I'm afraid I know better, Jesus. Right, whatever it is. 
Um, I think of the Flynn effect. We read about that, on, or I read about that on a regular basis. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, James Flynn, who's a sociologist from New Zealand, who in the 80s was the first to popularize this idea that IQ rates are raising, are, are rising, raising, are, <laughs> exactly, um, are rising. Uh, decade over decade, and he basically said that you're smarter than your grandparents, and of course, this idea went off like a hot minute all over the Western world because it fit like a glove into the progressive worldview, which sees progressives, and Portland is a great example, as the intellectual and moral leaders of society ahead of the narrative arc of human history. Conservatives, by definition, are conservative, are behind the narrative arc. Progressives are, by definition, progressive ahead of the narrative arc, and so it just fit right and we're smarter than ever before. We know better than all of those people from the ancient world who did not have science, who did not have internet access, who did not have higher education, all of that. Never mind the fact that the Flynn effect has been thoroughly debunked by pretty much everybody, from Malcolm Gladwell to every researcher who's ever looked into it. Even Flynn himself says it's bogus now. And all the recent research, you still read about it though, all the time, all the recent research says that we are no more intelligent than human beings were 30,000 years ago. We have more knowledge, but knowledge is not the same thing as intelligence, and intelligence is still not the same thing as wisdom. All that to say, it's really easy for us to just fall into what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, and you know, and just think, well, now we know better, Jesus, you just did not know what we know about whatever. And, and if that's you, I get it, that is the air we breathe. Here's all I'm saying. I invite you to suspend judgment for the next few weeks. And just consider, what if Jesus knows better than you or I the true nature of reality? What if Jesus and the writers of the Bible and all sorts of luminaries down through history and still hundreds of millions of people in the East and Africa and South America to this day, what if they have a whole other lens of reality to a dimension of reality that we in the Western secular world are blind to? All I ask is that you suspend judgment and you open your mind to that possibility. Because for Jesus, the devil is real. Secondly, notice that for Jesus, the devil's end goal, his agenda, is to murderer. Just to murderer. Again, I'm tired. <laughs> to murder. E-R period. End of sentence. Right? He is a murderer from the beginning. To murder is to wipe out all life. As Jesus says a few chapters later, the thief comes to steal kill and destroy. The devil is like, you know, the caricature of a villain in a movie, just how bent on destruction, whose malevolent intent is just to tear it all down. And the devil in the story of the library of scripture is at war with God himself, with God's vision of the good and the beautiful and true. As Lewis once said, quote, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And to apprentice under Jesus is to join in a war in heaven's invasion of earth, in a conflict, in a fight, the reason that your soul, your mind, your body, our society often feels like a war zone, maybe just maybe it's because it is. 
Finally, notice that for Jesus, the devil's means, if his end is to tear it all down, right, the ruin of your soul and our society, his means is, listen carefully, lies. Did you catch that? Jesus calls the devil the, quote, father of lies, the origin point of deception itself. Then he has that follow-up line, when he lies, he speaks his what? Native language. How good is that? Now, just a second. Hold up for a moment. That is not how most of us think about fighting the devil. So, more recent language, it's not used by Jesus, but the idea is there um, in the church in America, particularly in the charismatic tradition, for this fight, this inner tug of war, is spiritual warfare. And sadly, much of what passes as a theology of spiritual warfare is at best conjecture or at worst superstitious nonsense. Um, A while back, a lovely guy in our church came up to me to make small talk after one of the gatherings. I said, hey, how was your week? He said, oh man, it was rough. I was under attack from the devil. I thought, whoa, that's like, (laughs) you don't mess around. what, what went down, you know? And I'm expecting epic story. And he, dead serious, he goes, I ordered three Christian books off Amazon. When they came, two of them had bent covers. <laughs> and I had to return them. And I thought he was joking. So I started to laugh like, oh, that's great. Good one. And then it hit me, he's not joking. <laughs> Epic pastor fail that is most likely on YouTube somewhere, right? And so I said, oh, I will make all of my books hardback, I promise, in the future. (laughs) And I say that honestly not to tease him, but because when a lot of us hear the language of spiritual warfare, and honestly, that's what we think of. We think of Christian paranoia. Or the people are like, I was on the drive to church and I got in a fight with my wife, it was Satan. I think that was just you, man. I don't blame Hasatan for that one. I think that was just you, you know, whatever. Or like, it was a flat tire on the way. I think it was just a flat tire. So we think of this Christian paranoia or fear or weird and we just write it off. Or, Um, we limit it to something like an exorcism from the Gospels that we read about or, you know, a disease that's kind of weird and out of nowhere or a disaster, kind of like a tsunami this morning in Indonesia or some kind of like demon freaking out a little girl in the middle of the night. And there is truth, I think, mixed in with the weird nonsense. There's truth in all of that. I mean, for sure, in a lot of that stuff. I remember even when my daughter first came home to us, she was three at the time and was coming out of a very spiritual environment and for months she would wake up in the middle of the night scared out of her mind because she would wake up and see two green eyes right above her and was just full of fear. So I think there is some truth in all of that, but here's all I want you to notice. Please listen carefully. In Jesus' most in-depth teaching on the devil, he doesn't mention any of that. There's no demon in the story. Other stories, yes, but not here. There's no disease. Other stories, yes, not here. There's no disaster. Instead, it is an intellectual debate 
with the thought leaders of the day over truth and lies. Reread 44 and 45 with me. You belong to your father, the devil. Top 10 things you don't want to hear from Jesus of Nazareth. And you want to carry out your father's desires. Remember, he is speaking to religious leaders. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar. You think of that as a fundamentalist line, like the hellfire and brimstone preachers out railing against secular music or whatever. Jesus said that first. He is a liar and the father of lies, yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. So to step back 30,000 feet, for Jesus, one, the devil is real. Two, and is the most powerful and influential creature in the cosmos. Two, his end goal is to tear it all down, to ruin your soul and our society, to steal, kill, destroy, wipe it out. Three, his means, his primary stratagem against you and our city is lies. All the other stuff, the demon, the disease, the disaster, the wonky flat tire on the way to church, all of that is second tier, third, fourth, fifth, and down. Doesn't mean it's not legitimate. It just means that his primary, his go-to, his MO, his signature move is lies or deception. Therefore, Jesus sees the fight against the devil as a fight to believe truth over lies. Are we tracking? Now, let's take a step back for a few minutes and do a little philosophy, okay? I know just enough to be dangerous, so if you're a philosophy major, go easy on me, all right? But stay with me. This next part is a little heady, but I think it has the potential to unlock a whole new dimension of freedom in your life as it has in mine. Um, to begin, what is truth? the question of Pilate two millennia ago that is still around today. The best definition I know of truth is reality, or that which corresponds to reality. And the best definition of reality I know is what you run into when you are wrong. If I say, I believe I can fly, and I walk off the top of a building, reality is what I hit a few seconds later and a whole lot of pain. Hence, a cliche like a dose of reality or the cold, hard what? Truth. When we say that is a lie, what we mean is that statement, that claim, that tweet, that whatever, does not correspond to reality. When I ask my two boys or my children, who left the wet towel on the floor? Hypothetical scenario would never happen in the Comer household. And when Jude says, it was Moses, and Moses says, what? That is a lie. What he means, it was Jude. What he means is that does not correspond to reality. And then when I asked Jude, is that your final answer? Um, maybe. <laughs> Hypothetical scenario did not happen last night, I promise. <laughs> so, Truth is reality, and lies are the exact opposite. Lies are unreality. Now, stay with me. We all live from what psychologists call mental maps of reality. 
Sociologists use the language of worldview, postmodernists of the meta-narrative, followers of Jesus, um, talk about our faith, whatever you wanna call it, I love this idea of mental maps. We have literal mental maps, such as the route to work or school tomorrow morning. So right now, in your mind's eye, you hopefully have a mental map of how to get from your apartment or your house or your mom's basement whatever it is, no judgment. Well, a little bit of judgment, but we're happy you're here. Um, of how to get from your home to the office or the job site or your class. If your mental map is true, if it corresponds to reality, then you get in your car tomorrow morning or walk onto TriMet or get onto your bike and 20, 30 minutes later, you arrive at your destination, hopefully on time and not in trouble with your boss. But if your mental map is a lie, if it's not true, if it does not correspond to reality, you end up lost in Gresham or who knows where and late for work and in all sorts of trouble. Now, the thing is, in the same way that we have mental maps for our route to work, we have mental maps for all of our life, for our sexuality, for money, for power, for love and romance and marriage and family and parenting and time and what life is about. And our mental maps are no more than a collection of ideas. Ideas, by definition, are assumptions about reality. Or if we're a little less sure about an idea, a working theory about reality, about how life actually works and most of the time about what is the route to happiness. Every day, we all, again, follower of Jesus or not, navigate a world of ideas. Most of our life is ideas. Happiness is an idea. Democracy is an idea. Human rights is an idea. E equals MC squared is an idea. Theology is a collection of ideas about God. And our ideas coalesce to form a mental map by which we navigate day-to-day -day life. Are we tracking so far? Okay, now here's where it gets interesting. The wonder of the human creature that we are is our ability to hold ideas in our mind that correspond to reality and ideas that don't correspond to reality. Put another way, it's that we have the capacity to envision what is and what isn't. This is one of the main things that separates us from the animals. Even if you buy the evolutionary explanation of human origins, maybe you're full on, maybe you're a skeptic. Even if you buy it, all the recent research, not from followers of Jesus, from hardcore secular thinkers, as popularized by Yuval Harari and Sapiens and others, is that the bumper sticker of you know, evolution as this neat, tidy, linear ape to Homo erectus to Homo sapien is way off track. The current interpretation of the data is that all sorts of hominoid species were on the earth at the same time for tens of thousands, if not for millions of years. Harari points out that the reason Homo sapiens ended up on top, here we are doing a great job with the earth, thank you for that, um, is that we are the only creatures who have the capacity for imagination in his language. 
the only creatures that have the capacity to hold unreality in our mind. This is what enables all sorts of things. This is what enables spirituality, the capacity to perceive beyond the five senses to a whole other dimension of reality to engage with God himself. This is what enables all of society because for society to function, you have to organize together around a future, but the future is an unreality. All animals, like we have a puppy at home and I'm learning all sorts of things I don't care about, right? <laughs> animals, a dog is a great example, live in the present. Come here and all of a sudden there's a tail and it's like running in circles, right? Animals live in the present. There's no capacity to hold the unreality of the future in the mind. The future does not exist. It is an idea. It does not exist yet. So human beings have the capacity to hold the unreality of the future in mind and then work together as a community to bring that future to pass what we call society. This is what enables all forms of creativity, from writing a novel to baking a cake to programming an act to building a home or starting a business. We have the capacity to envision unreality in our mind, to hold in our imagination something that does not yet exist, and then, listen carefully, to use our body to turn that unreality into a reality whether it's something as simple as like, muffins sound good because it's fall, right? Apple cinnamon, that's an idea in your mind, an unreality that you bring into reality through your body, right? Or, or something far more grandiose, as I said, entrepreneur, a business, a relationship, a family, a church, a, what, a work of art, whatever it is. But tragically, this capacity to hold unreality in our minds, it is our genius and it is our Achilles heel. Because not only do we have the capacity to imagine unreality, we also have the capacity to come to believe in or trust in that unreality. Or put another way, to believe in ideas that are lies, that do not correspond to the way things actually work. As Dallas Willard said, we live at the mercy of our ideas, our ideas about God, our ideas about our humanity, our sexuality, money, time, relationships, the meaning of life, purpose, secular theory, spirituality, you fill in the blank. We live at the mercy of our ideas because the ideas that we believe in our mind give shape to what we do with our bodies or our whole person, which in turn shape the people we become and out of that shape the way that we behave. Believe, become, behave. When we believe truth, we show up to reality well. We show up to our body well. We show up to our sexuality our relationships, our work, our creativity in a way that is congruent with reality, put another way, that is congruent with the Creator's good intentions for His creation. And we thrive and we flourish. But when we believe in lies that are not congruent with the reality of the Creator's design for the creation, and tragically, when we allow those lies into our bodies, we open up our whole person, or what the writers of the Bible call the soul, to a poison. Truth leads to life. Untruth, lies, unreality leads to death. The most extreme example of this is mental illness, such as paranoid schizophrenia, 
where a mind set in unreality has brought ruin to a soul. It is a tragedy. They are in hell now, not later. Those of us that live and work and worship Jesus in the city center see this play out on a daily basis. But regardless of where you live, a far more common example is the many people who navigate life by mental maps that are off who follow a lie, who live in denial of truth of the way things actually work. All that to say, the cold hard truth is that our mental maps, the collection of ideas by which we navigate life are often wrong. In all honesty, are often horribly wrong and lead us not to life but to death. Now, philosophy class over, you still alive and awake? Back to the devil. (laughs) Ground I'm a bit more familiar with, all right? Jesus, listen carefully, Jesus calls the devil a liar. And his um, case study of the devil's stratagem is a story that he alludes to here from Genesis chapter three. You know the one with the talking snake? You all know the one with the talking snake. We'll get to it next week. We'll turn there more in depth. For now, again, just set aside, is this mythology? Is this history? Is this what? Just set aside for now. Whatever it is, it's true of the human condition. And in this story, you have that story in your mind. Most of you, even if you're new to Jesus, you have the gist of that story in your mind. Remember, when the snake, who's there, an early personification of what Jesus later, this creature that Jesus later called the devil, when It comes to Eve with malevolent intent to ruin her soul and her society. It does not come at her with a stick, but with an idea. It does not come at her with a sword or a tank or a predator drone, but with an idea. More, and not just any idea, a lie. The psychologist M. Scott Peck, um, in his groundbreaking work, which is a bit old now, it's from I think the late 80s, People of the Lie, which at the time, I'm not a therapist, but I know, again, just enough to be dangerous, but it was a kind of an aftershock across the Western world. He started out as a secular psychologist, and then later in life, I think in his late 40s, came to trust that Jesus is reality, and started to follow Jesus much later in his life. And he was the first to really, who was well-respected at an international level as a leading thinker of the day, was one of the first to ever do research on good and evil, and good people and evil people, because psychology is by definition, a derivative of the scientific method, and the scientific method is supposed to be value-free. Now you can't, which is why there's very little research or reading on good and evil and what makes people good and what makes people evil and how you cure evil and flame good in people because in order to do that, you have to make a value judgment because good or evil are moral statements. You have to say this is good, this is evil, this is moral, this is immoral, right? So he comes out with this groundbreaking idea in psychology, there are evil people in the world. To which all followers of Jesus were like, yeah, we've been saying that for a few millennia. We're pretty sure that's not new information. But at the time it was like, whoa, you can't say that. Oh my gosh. Anyway, book's called People of the Lie. In it he calls the devil a real spirit of unreality. And his basic thesis, his working thesis of how people turn evil is when people believe lies, believe ideas that do not correspond to reality. And then, with 
their body, not just their mind, they begin to live as if that lie were true, tragically what often happens is what was unreality becomes reality. What was a lie becomes true. Case point, case in point, if you believe the lie that you are unlovable, you're dirty, you're not worthy of love and respect, however that lie comes to you, most likely through your life experience, a parent wound, a family of origin, a body or personality that does not fit the cultural definition or ideal, however that lie comes to you, if you believe it, in that moment it's a lie, it's not true of you. You're not unlovable, you're not dirty, you're not unworthy of love and respect. You're a human being in the image of God. But if you believe that lie, and then you begin to live as if that lie were true, and let it color or discolor all of your relationships, your interaction with members of the opposite sex, of the same sex, how you live in community or don't live in community. Tragically, a year goes by, two, five, 10, and what can happen, not always, but what can happen is it can become true of you. You can become the kind of person with ruin in your soul who the way that you interact with other people, the defensive, the anger, the insular, the insecurity, the standoffishness, you can become the kind of person who is not that lovable by most people until if and when you are set free by the truth of Jesus. It's a whole other thing, we'll get to that soon. That's his basic thesis. Apply that to all sorts of other examples. If you believe the secular lie or idea that you are an animal with time and chance on your side, that sexuality, gender itself, marriage relationships, this is just no more than a social construct from the patriarchy to oppress you and limit your freedom. If you believe that, and then you begin to live as if you're an animal, sex is just biological, it's just play, morality is all a social construct. You know what you end up with? You end up with me too. You end up with a few decades later, people who have been told for decades you are an animal and all sexual norms are a traditional limit to your freedom. You end up with people who live into that lie and then tragically it starts to become true. People behave in ways that are dehumanizing and lead to death and not to life. And we see it play out every single week in the news. This is exactly what we see all the way back in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, from the very beginning, the devil's go-to strategy of what we have come to call spiritual warfare has been against humanity that of lies. And if you think of that story of Genesis, again, we'll do more work on this later. This is essentially a two-part teaching I did not have time for it in one talk. Um, so this is part one. We'll go to Genesis 3 next week. If you think about that story in your mind, think about it, pay close attention, the nature of his strategy, the nature of his lies are deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. Let me say that again, that is essentially my working thesis for the next month of our time together. His strategy, if the devil has a primary strategy, it's deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. So listen carefully. It's not just deceitful ideas or lies that have no emotional value. Like the devil is there in the back of your ear, Elvis is alive. <laughs> Believe it. 
believe it, live as if it's true. Like, that doesn't do anything for me, you know what I mean? Like, great news for Elvis or his granddaughter or whatever, um, but that has no emotional bearing on my life. Who cares? It's deceitful ideas, listen, that play to our disordered desires most of the time for happiness, or what the New Testament later calls the flesh. We'll talk in depth about the flesh next month. For now, placeholder, when you hear that language of the flesh, just think your disordered desires. The animal primal desires in you away from what is good and toward what is evil. It's not just that we do evil that is the problem, it's that we want to do evil. This is the problem. And not just that, we have this mixed bag. Think of the cartoon caricature of the demon on one shoulder and the angel on the other. We laugh at that. That is a profound statement of the human condition. It's cheesy, but it's true. We feel this mixed bag. Do you ever hear like one voice in your ear and the other in your ear? And part of you is pulled toward what is good and part of you is pulled toward what is evil. And the problem, again, is not just that you do evil, it's that you want to do evil while at the same time you want to do good. The problem is that you're in the line at New Seasons and on one side is the bikini and on the other is the chocolate cake. That is the human condition right there. You wanna know the spirit, the flesh, Pauline theology, Romans 8, it's the grocery store line right there, right? Let me just bring it down. It's about a cartoon and a grocery store, all right? It's about just, oh, Thor on one side and bacon on the other. That is the human experience, right? This war, this inner tug of war that we all feel. But seriously, it's our disordered desires, but listen carefully, for happiness. None of us sin out of duty or self-discipline. None of us are like, oh, 7 p.m., I'm really tired, but I need a lust. It's just the right thing to do. It's just... <laughs> It's in the calendar, I just, it's a commitment. I make a commitment to lust. <laughs> no, we sin because we believe a lie about what will make us happy. And we think in that example that to turn a man or a woman into an object for our sexual self-gratification will make us happy because again, we confuse pleasure with happiness and the two are not the same. We believe all sorts of lies, deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires for happiness and then those disordered desires are normalized in a sinful society or what the writers of the New Testament call the world or what most millennials like myself just call culture. Now, and now we'll talk about all of that next month. So for now, when you hear that language of the world, just think of a system of ideas that are institutionalized into evil because the devil's aim is to inject ideas not only into your mind and my body, but into the systems of the world itself. Education, government, entertainment, journalism, technology, the church. Who's in trouble here in the story? It's not those liberals or those conservatives or people in Washington, D.C. It is the religious leaders at the temple in Jerusalem. How does the devil ruin the church from the inside out with ideas? that are lies, 
that are deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires, whether that disordered desire is a racist desire or a prejudice or a greed or a desire for self-help or whatever it is, all he has to do is get in there with a deceptive idea that plays to a disordered desire that is normalized in a sinful society. Remember, ideas are his primary MO, not just for you, but for our society as a whole. Most of us get that ideas have consequences and that some of them are really dangerous. Hence the running debate right now between free speech and political correctness and all of that. And some people actually think that some speech should be illegal in public or online or in the church or whatever it is. That's because we get that some ideas are so dangerous they have the potential to ruin not only your soul but society itself. Low-hanging fruit example because it's somewhat fresh in our psyche is Nazi Germany which again, we forget because the caricature of a 1960s movie about World War II, we forget that prior to the two world wars, it was Germany that was the leader of Western civilization. Not America, we were like the backwater people over here on the other side of the pond. Not England, they were like weird with tea and that kind of stuff. It was Germany. Germany was decades, Germany was the apex of Western civilization by pretty much any metric system. Art, architecture, music. How many famous composers do you know that were German? Yes, pretty much all of them. A few Italians made it in, but other than that, it was pretty much all the Germans. Theology was the birthplace of the Reformation, some of the greatest minds in Western Europe. Science, technology, they were decades ahead of the rest of Europe in technology. On and sociopolitical theory, academics, education, urban planning, they were the apex of Western civilization. And then in a few decades leading up to World War I and then World War II, the entire society was destroyed from the inside out by what? By ideas by deceptive ideas about race, about ethnicity, about nationhood that played to disordered desires for power, for control, for money, for honor, for pride that were normalized in a sinful society. The crazy thing about a Nazi Germany, about an ISIS, is that people do what they do not because they think it is immoral and don't care, but because they think it is more moral and do care. This is the primal temptation all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It is to define for ourselves good from evil based on the voice in the back of our head and our own desire or disordered desire for happiness rather than on God and his vision of good, evil, and what it means to be human. This is the root. All sin, before it's ever about self-discipline or desire or rebellion, it is first and foremost about what do you believe is true? What do you believe is the mental map, is the path to happiness, to good life, to what it was made for? This is it. The problem is that it's really easy to spot ideas that are toxic in somebody else's society. We could sit here and tell you everything that's wrong with this society or that society in history around the world. It's much harder to spot ideas that are toxic in your own because you don't think they're toxic because you've come to believe they're true when they are not. But there are ideas all through our Western secular society in this great city that I live in and I love and I care about. There are ideas here that are toxic. The redefinition of freedom 
which goes back not to the 1960s, but to the Enlightenment, to the Founding Fathers, to the Declaration of Independence, where a few elite intellectuals of the day, in an attempt to throw off the aristocracy of feudal Europe and Britain, redefine freedom from the classic definition, going all the way back to Greece, and the Christian definition of 2,000 years, which had always defined freedom as freedom from, and not only freedom from tyranny, but more importantly, freedom from what the New Testament calls your flesh, from your own primal animalistic appetites, desire, urge, impulse that is toward good and not toward evil. Freedom was the capacity, what we would call self-control, the ability to not have to do what you want to do and to live happy, and that was freedom. But the Founding Fathers, and other Enlightenment thinkers redefine freedom from freedom from to freedom to, and said freedom is the ability to do whatever the heck you want, and nobody there to judge you, nobody there to stop you. In fact, the government is here to make sure you get to do whatever the heck you want. Now, right or wrong, let's just say that is a radical redefinition of freedom that goes on in a cliche like, be true to yourself, and all of that, that's an idea. Does that idea lead to life, or does it lead to death? There are other ideas, the redefinition, of course, of sexuality, and marriage, and family, and parenting within a few decades to upend what people have said for millennia. The redefinition of spirituality and secularism. Secular, secularism is an idea, is an attempt of an entire society not to live in rebellion against God as much as to live in denial that God even is there. Individualism, the attempt to live all by yourself, all on your own, don't tell me what to do, I'm an island. All of these are ideas that keep hundreds of millions of people in our nation and our society locked in a vicious cycle of dehumanization and death, ironically, in our city, mostly in the name of progress. Willard said it right, ideas are the primary stronghold of evil in the human self and in society. Ideas, not tyrants. There's all sorts of talk right now about the danger and the threat of tyranny, but we forget that ideological tyranny is a far greater threat than political tyranny. In fact, the latter flows from the former. After World War II, Churchill it was who said, the empires of the future will be empires of the mind. That is why America cannot win the war on terror. And I say this with great respect for our leaders, but jihad is an ideology. You cannot fight an ideology with a machine gun or a drone. Most of the time you just pour fuel onto the fire. All that to say, lies or unreality that come in the form of deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society are the devil's primary method of enslaving human beings and entire societies in his vicious cycle of ruin that leads us farther and farther east of Eden, as Steinbeck so beautifully lamented. This is why Jesus came as a teacher as a truth-teller, calling for apprentices to repent, that can be translated rethink reality, and believe, that can be translated trust, 
in his vision of what he called the kingdom or what we would call the good life. His mental map of reality. To, tra- to follow Jesus is to trade in your mental map and that of your culture or your society, your family of origin, or even your church at times for his mental maps. This is why Jesus came as a teacher or a truth teller, not as the general of an army, calling for apprentices, not calling for soldiers to pick up a sword. Later in John, in fact, if you're still open to chapter eight, just turn a few pages to chapter 18. Later in the story, Jesus is on trial, it's the night before his death, in front of Pilate, who was the king of that day and time. And he's on trial, think about it, as a threat to the Roman Empire. Think about it, Jesus was a pacifist. Like what's the, he went around healing people. There was no like submachine gun underneath his cloak, right? So what, what is the threat? But he was perceived by pretty much everybody, friend and foe alike, as a threat to the Roman Empire. Take a look at chapter 18, let's pick it up in verse 36. Jesus, there on trial, has this to say, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from a whole other place. Well, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. He's so ninja, it's awesome. In fact, listen carefully, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. So if he is a king, he is a philosopher king, a truth teller king. Now, keep in mind, ancient world, ancient Near East, king at the time, was synonymous with a warrior at the head of an army. Read the prophecies in the Old Testament of the Messiah or the coming king of Israel and the world. Read them. Many of them, not all, but many of them portray the coming Messiah as a warrior or a warrior king. It comes as zero surprise that pretty much everybody, from Peter to Pilate, are just waiting for Jesus to take up a sword, rally an army, and fight off the Roman Empire. That was the Messiah's job. The Messiah was supposed to be a warrior. And then here comes Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, teaching on nonviolence, what later inspired everybody from Gandhi to Dr. King to Mandela. Jesus was a warrior though. All of those prophecies were true, but listen carefully, he radically redefines that war. For Jesus, the real enemy isn't Rome. It isn't the corrupt temple aristocracy in Jerusalem. The real enemy or enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. You wanna know what the most quoted prophecy from the Old Testament is by the New Testament writers? Psalm 110. Go look it up on your own time. It's a war prophecy. It's violent, it's bloody, it's angry. It's about how the coming Messiah would wipe the blood of his enemies on his feet. And it's about Jesus. And all of the writers in the New Testament who were well aware of what Jesus had to say about nonviolence and love your enemy and all of that said, yeah, that's about Jesus. He was a warrior, but he radically redefined who the real enemy was behind the enemy. Your, your enemy isn't, as Paul would later write, flesh and blood. It's against the powers. 
It's against the principalities. It is against the evil behind the evil. And his weapon wasn't a sword or a chariot or a machine gun or a drone. It was truth. And his means wasn't courage on the battlefield. It was self-sacrificial love through death. Because it is by lies that we are enslaved. As Paul later writes, quote, taken captive by the devil to do his will, end quote. And it is by truth that we are set free. As Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth. Not I have truth on offer. I am the truth. Bomb, drop it right there. Capital T, I am the reference point for all reality. And then he later said, we read it a minute ago, you will know the truth and the truth will set you what? Free. All of which means as we begin to land for the day, that our fight against the devil, before it's ever about demonization, how to do an exorcism, whatever that thing is, healing, the disaster, all of that stuff, before it's ever about that, it is first and foremost the fight to believe truth over lies. And to internalize the truth of Jesus over the lies of the devil. Because truth, ideas, truth or lies, have zero power over us until we believe them. You hear lies and you hear truth every single day, and so do I, and it has little to no effect on you until you internalize it. You come to believe it, you trust it, and then you begin to live as if it is true. At that point, the power or the authority of that idea, truth or lie, is then set loose into your body to lead you to life or to death, to lead you to thrive or to ruin. This is the teaching of Jesus, the rabbi, the truth teller. To end, to that end, our practice for the week ahead is all up on practicingtheway.org slash fighting. That was not my idea, slash fighting, but I'm into it. I'm wearing this jacket all week long. Um, we have two exercises for you. One is for you to do with your community. Basically, the idea is just to, after dinner this week, set aside 10 or 15 minutes in the quiet, just all sit in the same room or whatever, but in the quiet, to attempt to identify the lies that you have come to believe. Now this is tricky because most of us, the lies that we have come to believe, we think are true. And so another way to phrase that is just to create a little space to open your mind to the thoughts of God and ask the Spirit to direct deposit into your mind and imagination to bring to the surface of your thinking Thoughts, ideas that you have come to believe that are true, that are actually not true. And then after 15 or 20 minutes of that, just circle up with a triad, two, three people, same gender that you feel safe with, and just share. I think I have come to believe this, and I'm not sure it's true. And then speak truth over one another. This is a delicate moment. Don't give a pat answer. We don't need a pep talk. The best thing you can most likely do is just read a scripture and pray or maybe speak truth of you are this, that, the other. Stay on firm ground of the teachings of Jesus. If at some point you disagree with the teachings of Jesus, we invite you to just sit quiet in that moment out of love and respect for Jesus and for the person across from you and his or her attempt to live into Jesus' vision of reality. 
The second exercise is one for you to do on your own, and it's just kind of step two. Once you have started to identify lies that you have come to believe, we have a little worksheet for you, and there are kind of six blocks just for you to work through that paradigm of what's the deceitful idea, just write that out, and then see if you can tie it to the disordered desire underneath it, write that out, and then see if you can figure out or write out how it's normalized in our sinful society. Then on the flip side, if you have deceitful idea on one side, think about what is the truth that Jesus is calling you to believe, write that in there, just scripture, thought, listening prayer, whatever, Some, a word from a friend or brother and sister in your community. Um, if you have, you know, here's the deceitful, disordered desire of my flesh, what's the reordered desire of the Spirit of God in me? And then if this is what's normalized in my sinful society, what is the new normal of Jesus' vision of life in the kingdom of God? And again, the attempt here is to uproot the lies that you have come to believe that right now are a poison in your soul and to instead internalize the truth that will set you free to show up to reality and thrive. Now to end, um, we're just getting started. We'll talk more about lies and truth and the talking snake and all of that next week. To end for tonight, um, I just wanna read to you, most of you know this. The most well-known quote from the Screwtape Letters is on page one where Lewis writes this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Or as another 20th century intellectual savant said, Kaiser Sozi of The Usual Suspects, ironically played by Kevin Spacey. <laughs> the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he didn't exist. For most of us in our city and even in our church, the danger is not that we freak out and blame our cold on the devil or whatever alphabet soup kind of nonsense or superstition. Um, the danger for most of us is that we just pretend as if he is a myth and we throw a picnic in the middle of a war zone and we rage in anger and anxiety because we think the real evil is you fill in the blank. And we're blind to a whole other dimension of evil behind the evil and good behind the good. And we live oblivious to the true nature of reality and we come to believe lies and we get sucked into the narrative of our city, some of which is great and some of which is toxic to the core. So the invitation to all of us if you're skeptical on this, this is such a safe place. All we ask is just suspend judgment and just listen, open your mind. But for those of you that are under the apprenticeship to Jesus of Nazareth, the invitation in the day ahead, the week ahead, the season ahead, through our fall practice, I really think that Jesus wants to do a really deep work in our church. Um, you pretty much never hear people in the vein of church that we're in talk about the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's just not cool. It just smacks of the fundamentalist preacher railing against you know, the evils of dancing and secular music or whatever. What's the Baptist line? The problem with premarital sex is it might lead to dancing. You know what I mean? That kind of a thing. <laughs> and so we just imagine that. We just, it's so easy. Like the second I drop that line, the world, the flesh, the devil, you're like, oh no, here come the fundamentalist roots, right? All of that. I think that there is a deep work 
that Jesus wants to do in our church. In a city that says, be true to yourself, i.e., give in to all of your desires with no filter, Jesus would say, live by the spirit and not by the flesh. In a city that says, culture is culture, just go out and enjoy it, Jesus would say, there's some to enjoy, but there is a world, a system of ideas in rebellion against God and hell-bent on death. Fight it with all that is in you. In a world that would say, just ignore all that superstitious nonsense, Jesus would say, open up your eyes and trust me, believe in me, I am true, not me, Jesus. It's late, I'm tired. Trust Jesus, <laughs> believe in Jesus. Place your trust in him as the true nature of reality in order to show up to reality and thrive. Let's stand together and pray. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.